Hello, and welcome to the Remnant Rising podcast. I've mentioned in other podcasts that it feels like the purpose of this podcast should be a moving target, that it should shift um, with the topic. But the overarching uh, purpose for this podcast is to uh, help the Remnant rise, um, maybe to to give uh buoying up to those who are clearly seeing the things that are happening and uh, going on in the world and help maybe bring some clarity uh, or at least point our noses collectively in the right direction. Um, and so with without further ado, uh, the, the title of this uh, podcast is uh, Philosophies of Men. I usually have a pretty positive spin, I feel like, I'd have to look back and be honest, um, uh, for topics, and that that topic just came to me uh, for what I want to discuss today. Uh, there's different ways you can say philosophies of men. You can say philosophies of men. You can say um, false doctrine. You can throw it into culturalism. I feel like all of those things kind of work together to be one umbrella under which we can find Lucifer's kingdom, uh, where he, Joseph, when he went to restore the church, right, had been told by the Lord that um, all of them drew close to him with their lips, but they were far from him, and that they had a form of godliness, but they denied the power thereof. And I think we can say pretty unequivocally we're there. Uh, that's a bold statement, and I'll probably take heat for it. And if people genuinely know my heart, they know that it's not my place or desire to fight with individuals. So those of you who know that I left the church, I, uh, I did sit with a, with a local leader and I covenanted with him that I would never fight against righteous leaders in the church. I'll never fight against a righteous person. In fact, I try to uh, subscribe to the admonition of Paul um, that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but wrestle but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness in this world, against spiritual wickedness, wickedness in high places. And so today's podcast is going to be focused on that. You know, I, I will take and have taken heat from people. You're attacking the leaders of the church. No, I'm, I'm simply exposing truth with regards to where we are, uh, where I see that things will go based on scripture, based on biblical um, prophecy, Book of Mormon prophecy, and the prophecy of especially Joseph Smith, but also mod some modern prophets, especially early in the church. Although even late um, in the church, uh, Ezra Taft Benson and others. Um, <clears throat> so without too much further ado, I kind of want to get into some of these. I kind of have broken down these into like five major topics that I wanted to, to get through today. So I will say this. This is not in any way a all-encompassing list. I know that there's lots more. Um, and if you head over to my Facebook page, uh, you can uh, throw some comments up there. Uh, not my Facebook page, but the Remnant Rising Facebook page. Uh, you can throw some comments up there. Um, if you didn't know that that page exists, it is Remnant Rising. Um, 
and you can find it. There's kind of a picture in the background of, um, you know, of a, actually a rainstorm that we had, um, and some other things and, and you should be able to find it. Um, and just go ahead and like the page and then, uh, maybe you can put some other, some, some other things up there on the list. Um, or message me and, and I can put them up if you're not comfortable. So this is, like I said, not an all-encompassing list, but I, I wanted to start the conversation. That's, that's generally uh, where I like to be. Uh, I like to kind of start the conversation and, and get the synapses firing for myself, and if that helps other people, then awesome. So let's dive right in to one thing that's bothered me for a long time. Uh, which is uh, which is scripted and protracted repentance. Uh, I really feel like this has been addressed kind of in the church, but it's never been uh, fully addressed in my mind. And I'm going to give some illustrations of repentance um, that I think destroy the protracted process of repentance in the church as it is at least in the formal repentance process so that hopefully we can see that that in my mind is a bitter fruit of of uh, apostasy i will say this that um i want to sort of define apostasy maybe before i get into this the purpose of part of this podcast will be to show that and and please message me email me which is remnant rising at uh, remnant rising 2020 at gmail.com remnant rising 2020 at gmail.com if or message me on facebook if you feel like um or you find or know of a place where the lord said in scripture or otherwise that the church would never fall into apostasy i remember being taught this growing up and yet the scriptures are very, very um, pointed that we that the church will fall into apostasy. And as we go through this process today, uh, I hope that that's something that we can recognize. Um, and I can hear the detractors now sitting out there going, no, you're in apostasy, right? You're the apostate. We're still the church. And I'm like, as thou sayest, like, clearly, uh, truth is in the eye of the beholder. And, uh, and, and it's good. Okay, so back to this topic of scripted and protracted repentance. One story particularly that, well, let me give you first the, the Lord's words, right? Um, and experiences with the Lord. If you remember the Lord taught in front of the Sanhedrin, I'm always amazed at how he, at some of the most pointed things that he's ever said, um, they generally start with verily, verily, I say unto you. And there was one particular point in the Lord's life when he was teaching in the synagogues and, or, or in the streets, I don't remember where he was teaching. And the Sadducees and Pharisees were constantly sending spies, basically, and hecklers, right? I mean, it just seems like the Lord could no sooner start speaking than he was already getting heckled by these Pharisees and Sadducees who were wandering around harassing him. And I love how good the Savior is at tying him, tying them into their own paradoxes and then sending them packing. And it happened over and over and over and over. And it seems like he would do his best to ignore them or to give them part of an answer 
Um, but there were times where he had a clear message he needed to get across to the people he was teaching, and he literally would tie them into a conundrum of their own silliness and then just send them on their way. And interestingly, or at least give them something that would make them so angry that they would have to leave probably to in order to save face because they were so irate with the things that he would say. And I know he did this purposefully. Um, I, I, I feel prompted to share this really quickly just to get into um, some of the character of Christ. I hadn't anticipated on sharing this, but I feel like this is pointed and poignant. Um, I, I've covered this before. And yet I feel like this is very relevant to, to covering this topic of philosophies of men, mingled with scripture, dumbing down of doctrine, sanitization of history, all of these things showing and pointing to the signs that we are in the place of apostasy right now as a church body. Um, and that this quote has to do with, with the character of Christ. And this doesn't come from an apostle or a prophet. I don't even know who wrote this. But it is so pointed and powerful with regards to the full character of Christ, which is a Joseph Smithism, right? For those who still, um, who don't look at Joseph, as a friend said recently, as a hiss and a byword, right? But look at Joseph's word as factual and doctrinal and scriptural. Um, when Joseph said, if man does not comprehend the character of God, he does not comprehend himself, um, I feel like this captures the character of Christ, what I'm about to read to you. So I don't even know who wrote this, but that's okay. I just love this, this whole description. This is just your daily reminder that Jesus wasn't a Chick-fil-A Chick eating hipster Christian, but a system toppling brown skinned son of God that raised the dead, healed the sick, empowered women, wept with the broken, embraced the marginalized, opposed the proud, turned culture on its head, and was killed by the very ones he came to save. He didn't have time for the niceties of hiding behind the veil of religiosity, but tore through it with his very body to release the spirit of God within us, that we might manifest the reality of heaven on earth in everything we do. Let's live out what he paid for. I love that. It's absolutely so true to form of Jesus Christ and of what I feel like we should be doing as disciples of Jesus Christ, as genuine disciples of Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. If you know who wrote that, mad props. Like, I have no idea who wrote that. Somebody sent it to me as a screenshot, maybe from a Facebook comment or something. I have no idea. But it was powerful. I've read it to several people. Like, that is Jesus Christ. And yet in the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, he's portrayed in one of two ways, like this taskmaster who has given us all these commandments and we're just running from place to place trying to check boxes madly. And then he's also portrayed as, um, as a sandal-wearing, tree-hugging hippie, basically. And that is not the reality of Christ. The reality is, is that he's very dynamic and powerful. And I think that's a good place to start. Um, so let's let's get back to scripted and protracted repentance um, and Christ um, teaching the people. He's teaching the people in the synagogue. And again, here come the Sadducees and Pharisees and they start giving him a hard time. And he, he turns to them after a, a lengthy discussion and says to them, um, 
Verily, verily, I say unto you. And when he says that, you should probably listen because he's about, he's about to mash you in the mouth with some truth. Um, you don't think Jesus would mash us? Well, like he's, he's mashed me hypothetically or, or figuratively multiple times in the mouth with truth. And the truth that he drops, the truth bomb he drops in this situation is he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you that the harlots and publicans enter the house of God before you do. Now, who is he saying this to? He's saying this to the Sadducees and Pharisees, the very men who are ruling and reigning over the people with an iron fist, requiring them to count steps on Sunday and micromanaging every aspect of their lives in a religious fashion that disallows spiritual experience. They're so hyper-focused on checking these insane level of boxes on truly ascending to God, right? that they can't clearly see that they need to be having spiritual experiences and exercising their own, um, their own agency. So, um, you know, another instance with Christ, the Sadducees and Pharisees bring the woman found in adultery before him and they throw her down at his feet, right? And he looks up at the crowd and then he looks back down and starts drawing in the, in the sand, and then they're yelling at him, like, "Who? what sayest thou? Under the law, she should be stoned, right? And then he looks up at them, and he goes, look, let him who is among you without sin cast the first stone at her. Well, obviously, they all vaporized, right? We know the rest of the story that's powerful when Christ um, lifts her up and says to her, look, um, where are your accusers, right? Where are those who have condemned you? Has no man condemned you? And then she looks around and she's like, no man, Lord. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Go thy way and sin no more. I'm pretty sure after this, the postscript, you know, rest of the story, once the cameras in, in the, in the Jewish world were turned off, that Jesus didn't pull her aside and say, now sister, here's the phone number to your bishop and I need you to go and sit with him for hours and labor through the process of repentance in order that you may learn the 12 step process of repentance so that you can, you know what I mean? Like he didn't do that. Like he, he literally frankly forgave her and sent her on her way. And someone could say, well, that's the Lord, right? He was his prerogative. It was his atonement. Okay, fine. Then let's explore places where in modern church history, we have the application of forgiveness applied in ways that are powerful. And we've looked at these stories and we failed to see that the Lord is not protracted. He is not looking to have somebody go through an arduous process of repentance, but instead is looking for common judges who can recognize through revelation that somebody has met the requirements that the Lord has levied upon them in order to have their blessings restored in the church. And uh, I will share this, um, that, that personally I have witnessed uh, in my own life, in experiences I had in the quote-unquote repentance process in the church and others, that there are common judges who know how to feel the Spirit of the Lord and receive revelation with regards to those that are in their stewardship and those that do not, clearly do not. And it's been interesting because I had an experience in a repentance process one time where I knew unequivocally through multiple witnesses of the Spirit in my life that the Lord was telling me I was clean and forgiven. 
And I approached humbly my bishop at the time and I said, Bishop, I know through the Spirit that I'm clean and forgiven. I know, like the Spirit has witnessed it to me. And I'm not telling you how to do your job as the bishop, but I am petitioning you to exercise your keys um, and, and ask if I am. And I'll be honest, like I love this man to death, I do. And, and I love his integrity is, more, is what I love more than anything. Um, he, he, he got upset at first. He's like, well, I'm the judge and I'll know. The Lord, don't you think the Lord would tell me if, I, if you were ready? And, um, and I absolutely agreed with him. I said, yes, Bishop, of course the Lord's going to tell you. But sometimes we have to ask. That's what I've learned, right? And I was really new in, my, in the process of, you know, this whole learning about repentance and, and everything. I, I, but I knew that I needed to, you know, to share that with him. And I said, look, I'm willing to wait, Bishop for years, if that's what the Lord requires of me. I'm just asking you to, to consider um, that, that maybe he did give me this message. And if he did, that I know that if you, you know, if you ask that he'll give you the same answer. And, um, and so I went home and I honestly had submitted to the fact that I may have to wait months or even year longer, or however long that the Lord wanted me to wait. Um, and that I was submitted to that completely. And I got a phone call a couple hours later and the tone was completely different. And I was grateful. I, I was, I still am so in awe of his humility that he did go with a pure heart and kneel before the Lord and say, and ask the question, is Tyson ready? Has he, have you forgiven him? Is he clean and forgiven in your eyes? And the answer came to him unequivocally. And he was emotional when he called me back and he said, you're ready. Like the Lord has given me a witness that you are ready, that you're clean before him. And he said, we need to re reconvene your counsel. And I was so grateful for that experience. Um, I haven't seen that a lot, honestly, in the, in the kingdom of the Lord, in the kingdom, not the kingdom of the Lord, but in the church. Um, I haven't seen that a lot. Um, I've, in fact, I've had friends who've come to me and they're like, dude, I've received this witness. This isn't anything I solicited or told them first. I never told that story in publicly or in any way until now. And I've had friends and relatives call me and be like, dude, I know that what you said about me being clean and forgiven is true. And yet I still, my bishop is still saying that I'm not. And, and they've, they've labored in that uh, of submitting to that. And you know, we could go back and forth. I'm not a member of the church anymore. So someone could say, I don't have a dog in the fight. And that's fine. Like, I don't need to have a dog in the fight. All I need people to understand is, is that that's my, that was my experience. And, and that, that, that this protracted process of repentance and arduous process of repentance need not be. Um, that if people were taught the true principles of, of what, of how to know themselves, that they're clean and forgiven, um, then they would be able to operate clearly um, in that. Um, and, and I've talked about this in other podcasts, but the, the purpose, the two primary purposes in my mind of the Holy Ghost are comforter and sanctifier. And we've been told over and over again by the brethren, um, as well as in scripture, that, um, that the, the Spirit of God cannot dwell in an unclean temple. And Elder Irene gave an amazing talk one time where he basically said, if you've felt the spirit today, 
then you may take that as evidence that you're you are that the atonement of Jesus Christ is working in your life, and you may take that and understand that that um, two things is happening: you are being cleansed, and that the Spirit of the Lord cannot dwell in an unclean temple. So it's like that process of you know of being cleansed and being clean are are one and the same. And I testify to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of Jesus Christ, that if you have felt the Spirit of the Lord today in something I've said, in your study, whatever, wherever you feel it, you need to understand and know that you're clean and forgiven. Like the Spirit of the Lord cannot dwell in an, un, in an unholy temple. And if you're feeling the Spirit of the Lord in your, in your life on a daily basis, then I testify to you in the name of Jesus Christ, that means you're clean and forgiven. And I unequivocally tell you that if you're feeling the Spirit of the Lord and you've qualified for that blessing in your life, that what that means to you is that you can cross the portals of this world. If you died today and crossed the portals of this world, you would walk directly back into the arms of Jesus Christ, Heavenly Mother and Heavenly Father. Um, I will say that the false notions of going to a holding tank uh, as a spirit before you get to enter, you know, into the presence of Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother is bogus. Like, those that go to spirit quote unquote prison that's a true principle um but it's only because they're bound by their beliefs about um about god and and who they are and and receiving forgiveness etc okay so one more quick story i will give the very truncated version of this i didn't know this story until recently and i have been so impressed by the elements of of how quickly the Lord can forgive over some egregious stuff. Like we're talking just about as bad as it gets. So Orson Hyde, um, amazing man. I love him. And there's so many amazing elements of his life and those that interacted with him that, um, that I, he's one I look forward to communing with again in the heavens. Orson Hyde began his interaction with the church as an employee of Newell K. Whitney in the Newell K. Whitney store. He's living uh, in the store, in one of the rooms, in, in the, uh, I believe in the bottom of the store, and he's an employee of Newell K. Whitney. He doesn't like Joseph. He doesn't like the church, and, but yet this is where he's introduced to the church. And so he begins his experience with the church as a, as a detractor. He's actually actively teaching against Joseph, sort of starting his own ministry and proselyting against Joseph. Now, I love the integrity of Newell K. Whitney because Newell K. Whitney comes to him. And what is inferred in the interaction, while it's not explicitly stated, is that Newell K. Whitney never came to Orson threatening him with his employment. I mean, here's Newell K. Whitney, who's assisted Joseph in bringing forth the Book of Mormon and, and assisted Joseph monetarily and is assisting in the work and is clearly a follower of, of, of Joseph Smith and the, and, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he does not come to Orson Hyde and threaten Orson with his employment, which in that day, no one's going to discriminate or no one's going to file a lawsuit because he discriminated against somebody. But Newell K. Whitney honors the agency of Orson Hyde. I love it. He comes to Orson and he goes, Orson, like, I'm not coming to you as your boss today. I'm coming to you as your friend. Hey, like you're battling against this Joseph Smith guy, right? And, and the Book of Mormon. And Orson's like, yeah, I am. And he's like, well, don't you think you should read the Book of Mormon? That way, if you're going to argue against it, at least you've read it. And obviously, we know the rest of the story. He reads the Book of Mormon. He's converted. 
Um, he becomes an assistant to Joseph, a scribe for Joseph, an assistant to the Quorum of the Twelve, and eventually is ordained an apostle. But Joe, but Hiram's uh, Hiram's challenges didn't end there, right? It, 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 he had challenges over and over again. At a certain point, um, they're in Kirtland, and there's some you know some strife rising up about Joseph and how he's he may be a fallen prophet, and. Orson is privy to some conversation, has noticed some of these, you know, probably personality trait issues for Joseph and has been like, yeah. And he comments in that group uh, as an apostle, um, sort of talking smack a little bit about Joseph. Um, If he wasn't an apostle at the time, he was definitely uh, an assistant to the Quorum of the Twelve um, and Joseph's scribe at a minimum. I mean, and a personal friend, right? So he he sort of violates all those levels of office um, and um, not sort of. and, And he feels bad about it. He goes home. He can't sleep. He rushes to find Joseph in the morning and he finds Joseph in the Kirtland Temple giving a blessing to Heber C. Kimball and setting uh, Heber C. Kimball apart as, a, as a, a missionary to go to the British Isles. And after the blessing is over, um, Orson approaches Joseph and he's like, Joseph, I said some things about you last night that I should not have said that are not true and I'm sorry. And Joseph said, I know, I heard, I already forgave you. And Orson weeps and he says, like, Joseph, like, I... I want to show my devotion to you. I want to show my devotion to God. Will you let me go on a mission to the British Isles? Um, and Joseph's response was uh, yes. Like, And Joseph's weeping at this point. And he places his hands on Orson's head and he sets him apart as a missionary to go to the British Isles with Heber. And those two missionaries were two of the most powerful missionaries in the history of the church. They literally were walking into congregations, raising their arm to the square, testifying of truth and the restoration, and you know, entire congregations were being baptized. So amazing, amazing, amazing history um, with those two missionaries. Orson returns from his his mission, and just like all of us, you'd think he'd learned his lesson by now, but he comes back, he has some kind of illness, and I feel like from the history that, it, that he was actually kind of quarantining himself so he didn't expose anyone else, um, and in the process, there's somebody that comes to see him. And this somebody is the now disaffected Thomas B. Marsh. And Thomas B. Marsh comes, and he was the prior president. Thomas B. Marsh was the president of the Quorum of the Twelve. And Thomas B. Marsh comes to Orson, and he says, Orson, uh, Joseph is a fallen prophet, and he starts filling Orson's brain with all of this stuff. And Orson begins to believe it. Um, he begins to believe what is being perpetuated by Thomas B. Marsh. Thomas B. Marsh, you know, after uh, several meetings, comes and sits down with him. And Thomas B. Marsh has written a letter, and he, in the letter, um, cites all of the things that Joseph is doing that make him a quote unquote fallen prophet and not a good man. And he asks, uh, Thomas B. Marsh asks Orson Hyde to sign this letter. Thomas had signed it and he wanted Orson to sign it. And Orson did sign it. Uh, he put in postscript that he, he believed, but did not know that those things were true. Well, that letter becomes the impetus and the support behind the extermination order. And 
that thereby sends Joseph to jail for six months um, in Carthage, I mean, in Liberty, excuse me. Um, and it expels the saints from their homes. Um, and they walk across the snow. There's bloody footprints. I believe Joseph and Emma lost a, a child to exposure from this expulsion. Um, you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong on that, but I believe that happened. I know that other people lost family members because of exposure um, in that winter expulsion from their homes. Um, and so it, it was a powerful example about how false testimony can, can cause a lot of suffering. What's more powerful to me is that 15 months later or so um, after the letter signed, Joseph sitting at his table and probably through the foggy glass of windows back then, because it wasn't very, the window panes weren't super clear. Um, he sees a figure walking to his home and leaps from his chair. He's eating his breakfast and he looks and sees a, a figure walking towards his house and it's Orson. And he runs and embraces Orson, brings him inside. I don't know if they ate breakfast or what, but it, it's about a week or two later, a short period of time, that Orson is reordained as an apostle. And then Orson goes on to serve that, that mission. He served a mission in the, um, which was you know, testified and, and given in a blessing previously to Orson that he would serve a, a mission to the Holy Land and dedicate that land for the gathering of Israel. Um, and I sit there and I look at that. That's such a remarkable story. And I've, you know, I, I know that's been shared countless times. And we're like, let's stop for a second and let's actually look at what's happening. Are we kidding? This guy was apostate in the worst way. His testimony caused people their lives. Joseph spent six months in prison because of that testimony. And like I said, I believe Joseph and Emma lost another child to exposure from that. And what is Joseph's response? To forgive him, frankly, and then restore his blessings and then reordain him as an apostle? Really? And yet we have this protracted process of repentance in the church and common judges who don't know how to receive revelation. I'll just be frank. Not all of them but many who do not know how to receive revelation. And it's gotten so bad, and I'll just throw this out there as a zinger and side note, that I know of cases where stake presidents have admitted that they've excommunicated people because they were told to by higher authority. In my mind, also a sign of apostasy. I don't understand why higher level leaders need to jump in and, and get involved in witch hunts, but <clears throat> that's probably a topic for a different day. Um, along with this topic, shifting gears a little bit, the order of sin, as I sat with the Lord trying to discover what, um, the lower level sins versus the higher level sins are, man, in the church, like morality, etc., is something we get browbeat with, right? These are the worst sins, blah, blah, blah. And there are scriptures that make reference to that, I would challenge you to go back and actually look at them um, and understand what they mean. But clearly the Lord's narrative, when he told the people that the harlots and publicans would enter the kingdom of God before the Sadducees and Pharisees, denote that there's a greater sin 
than even immorality or being a traitor to your people. Publicans were tax collectors. So they had turned their back on their own people and were bleeding them dry, according to the Jews, for the Romans. So those are two despised groups of people. And, and the Lord poked the Sadducees and Pharisees in the chest and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you that the publicans and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you do. And I'm like, whoa, like, let's look at what's actually happening then. So what is the Lord saying is the greater sin that the Sadducees and Pharisees are um, guilty of? And that sin comes down to the ultimate sin um, in my mind, and that is, um, is the shedding of innocent blood eventually is where this, this sin leads. But it starts in a more subtle way of control. And the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the scribes and the, and the lawyers, the Sanhedrin, as they were called, um, were guilty of that. They were guilty of controlling the narrative. Um, they wanted things to be the way they were so that they could maintain power. I mean, this is illustrated in some very simple stories in the New Testament. Um, and they operated in fear. They leveraged fear, but they were also fearful of losing the power that they had, which is why Jesus Christ set their neighborhood in an uproar and why they were so dedicated to ultimately killing him. Because he told the truth and he was setting the people free. He was showing the people that you have choice in this. You don't have to follow what these yahoos are saying. You don't have to get in line in the symphony of destruction, right? Like the Pied Piper leading the rats through the streets. Like you don't have to sway to the symphony of this destruction. Christ was trying to get them to stand up in their agency and operate in it. And, and that's why the Sanhedrin were in fear. And it's illustrated in many, many points and cases, but none more than when the Sadducees and Pharisees are yet again poking Christ in the chest and they ask him, who gave you this authority? And then he turns around, to, you know, they're like, who gave you authority to teach these things, right? And to do the things you're doing. And he turns around and he's like, oh, you answer me a question and, and then I'll answer yours. Who gave John the Baptist his authority? Right. And they're like, uh, so they turn around and they huddle up. They're like, huddle up, boys, get in here. Okay. Uh, so uh, if we say that, that John the Baptist got his authority from God, we've now nullified ourselves. We made ourselves irrelevant to the people. But if we say that John the Baptist got his, got his power from the devil, then we fear the people because they love John the Baptist. So in fear and their own cowardice, they turn around and they say, well, we don't know, right? That's what they decide upon. We don't know. And I think that that is, you know, as I, as I reflect, that's a bitter fruit of apostasy is apathy, right? Or fear and not wanting to, um, to, to address things head on. You know, they're trying to address uh, a Jesus head on, but then they like, they, they kind of sidestep and like, you know, I don't, I don't know if we really want to engage in this, right? We might have opened a can of worms here, which they did. Uh, and then Christ obviously teaches them powerfully that the harlots and publicans are going to enter the kingdom of God before they do. So the worst sin, aside from shedding blood and, um, and denying the Holy Ghost, right? The sin of perdition is seeking to control the agency of other people. And if the religious institution that anyone belongs to is leveraging the lower level emotions of shame, guilt, and fear 
Those are sort of the big three that religious organizations leverage. They're leveraging that against the people to control the population, to control their ability to go and exercise spiritual gifts. You know, I mean, just go down the list of things that the church, that a church could do um, to control people. You start to get a sense of of that sign of apostasy. Um, Okay, so another big one, another big... um, big sign of apostasy i believe that's alive and well in the church is this notion and cultural tradition that we're earning our way to heaven uh president uchtdorf when he was in the first presidency gave a really good talk on grace i would go look it up if you want to understand true doctrine undefiled it's one of the best that i believe has ever been given with regards to our salvation we're not earning anything right like the lord has requirements that he gives to us um, many of which are, are standardized, but some of many of which are also personalized. In fact, we get to the point in our process of ascension where we're receiving things that are personalized for us. Um, and, and we need to, to, to understand that. So we're not earning our salvation. We're not earning our way to heaven. Um, I love this that came to me the other day. The Lord gave the Beatitudes. He didn't give the do attitudes. And um, he's not all about us being doers, right? I mean, he wants us to be doers of the word and not hearers only, but that's in order to be or, um, you know, at a very minimum to start becoming. Another fruit of apostasy is unrighteous judgment. Um, Again, sort of go back to, um, you know, the harlots and the publicans. Uh, The last element of this is that I want to discuss, um, and this podcast will be a little bit shorter than some of the others, but that's good. Sometimes I get too long winded, uh, is the hero worship that has, uh, come into the practice and tradition of the church. Um, I'll take some heat for this, for saying this, and I don't really care. Uh, hero worship with leaders in the church is, is actually nauseating at times. Um, in fact, the vulnerability of Elder Uchtdorf to share what he shared uh, about um, him being on a trip with Elder Faust and Elder Faust saying, you know, I think that uh, Dieter was a brand new apostle, but it may have been when he was a 70. Um, but Elder Uchtdorf was, was relating that he was in a, on a trip with, with President Faust and they were driving somewhere and President Faust said, Dieter, I feel to give you a warning. He said, when you go places, the saints will say all kinds of nice things about you. They will, they will, you know, they will, they will and they're well-meaning, right? They, they love, right, you. And, and so they're, you know, they're going to say all kinds of nice things about you. And, and he said, you always be grateful for this, but never inhale it. And um, I love that. Like, I have, we've all had people say really nice things about us and, and it is important for us to have good uh, self-image and, you know, to, you know, to, to allow ourselves to see ourselves in our I am, like God, right? All of the things that I've discussed before. It's also important to stay humble. And I have learned of recent that, um, that there are certain members of the Quorum of the Twelve um, who have levied their expectation that people stand when people don't understand that that's culturally appropriate in the church. So I've studied and I've tried to figure out where did that tradition start? 
And from everything I can ascertain, the tradition of people standing when the prophet entered the room actually began with Joseph. But if you go back and read the journal entries of people who knew Joseph and who experienced that, they say that it was actually almost involuntary. Like they could feel the mantle and the power of Joseph Smith and they revered and respected him so much that when he entered a room, they stood as if compelled to. I mean, not really compelled, but they were so, their agency was so engaged in in awe and, and respect and reverence for Joseph that they would stand when he entered the room. Um, and so all of a sudden that got translated to the, to the apostles <clears throat> and, and it, it really does lend itself, <clears throat> excuse me, in my mind to hero worship. I have experience with this in the military. As a military officer, I always felt awkward having to stand up uh, or having people stand up when I entered the room. There was a lot of meetings where, that I was in charge of. I was the last one to enter the room. Formality was that I waited until the time of the meeting was to start. I walked in the door at the exact right moment and everybody to begin the meeting. I mean, if it was a nine o'clock meeting, I walked in the door, looked at my watch and I literally would walk in the door at the exact second. And this was protocol. Like my first sergeant wouldn't let me enter the room any sooner than, than that moment. And everyone would stand. And I, I really, while I, while I was grateful for the tradition, uh, it bothered me. It bothered me my whole career. Like I would have rather been the guy in the in the meeting early, sitting there across from one another, having a conversation, right? Like not, you know, wanting this formalized process. And and yet I was always honored that they stood. And I remember one time um, lamenting that with one of my senior enlisted leaders, just like, man, chief, I really. I know it's important to maintain bearing and discipline in the ranks. I'm like, but with all of you, I really view all of you as my peers, even though I know that I'm the boss and I don't, I hate it. You know, I I don't like it when you guys have to stand for me. And, um, man, getting a little emotional, um, to his credit, he looked at me and he said, sir, I've had a lot of officers in my day that I've been required to stand for. Well, I want you to know, sir. That if you were to enter a room, I would stand to honor you, even if you weren't an officer. And, and this chief actually did that. I watched him do it with enlisted troops who would walk into his office. I mean, he's the senior enlisted leader of our, of our squadron. And I watched the lowliest airman who's having a struggle or challenge that needed to come talk to the chief walk into his office. And I watched the chief stand. And... That is why the people stood for Joseph. I stand for Joseph now. Um, And I'll stand for the Lord. So just know that I have a problem with that. As somebody who's experienced that kind of quote-unquote hero worship in this world, and I definitely have a problem when it's expected, when someone stalls their entrance into a room, so they can wait for people to stand. That's despicable. And, and I urge anyone who has that desire in their heart to be reverenced by people to repent, regardless of your station in life.
military officer or otherwise. <clears throat> Although if you're in the military, it's kind of required. Um, okay. And I would just say this, be honored that people do stand for you. Um, I'm just going to go back really quick to a personal anecdote. So I had a friend who, um, who came to me, came to my parents' house. This was, he's a friend now, but he was a hero to me growing up. His name's John. He lived across the street from our family. And as I would go across the street as a young kid, he would sit there at his table and smoke cigarettes. And my brothers and I would sit with him and talk with him. And he genuinely was engaging with us in our lives, right? I mean, here's this little Mormon family across the street, not little, but big Mormon family across the street from this guy. And we were always over there. In fact, I proved probably annoying because we'd see him outside and then we would just run over there and start talking to John. And as an adult, um, man, a lot of emotion coming up. I was at my parents' house and John walked in. I didn't know he's coming to visit, not came at the door and John entered the room and I was compelled to stand like my spirit literally leapt within me and I stood and John walked over to me. He's like, Hey, you don't have to stand up. And the words just flowed. And I put my arms on both of his shoulders, looking at him with emotion in my face. And I said, John, I always stand for those that I adore and love and respect. And that is the reason that we should stand for any person, right? Is that we respect and adore and love them as a brother and sister, not because of some position that they hold. Okay, the last <clears throat> bitter fruit of apostasy. Um, if, if they had a be the prophet for a day, uh, they had the be, be the prophet for a day program, right? And, the, and then you could come in and they're like, okay, we bless you with one gift. You could change something about the policy administration of the church or correct some, you know, some falsehood that you see. Uh, I've said often that, that that day would be, I would only do one thing, right? I would just say, let's get rid of the, the song, follow the prophet. And let's strike from the narrative that entire ideology because it's a fallen ideology. It was never intended for us to follow the prophet. And we're indoctrinating children with that. And that is never, hasn't been more clear than it has been with President Russell and Nelson. I genuinely believe that he came to invite us to come back to the Lord, to hear the voice of the Lord, to to follow the spirit to for sisters to operate in the priesthood and for us to commune with heaven and pierce the veil those are all invitations that if you look back over his talks he's invited us to do those things and what i believe is that he's restoring the narrative that he's standing aside and saying don't look to me or the other brethren you need to follow the lord you need to have a personal relationship with him you need to follow Jesus Christ, hear his voice, be taught by him, be taught by angels, stop following a man, right? Follow the Lord. And I really genuinely believe that he's done a favor to a lot of people who've broken out of that box and realized how false a narrative it is to quote unquote, follow 
a prophet, right? You follow the Lord. And if the Lord is, if the prophet is following the Lord and they dispense good advice, then perfect. But did not Moses try to take the entire camp of Israel to the top of the mountain? Why? So they would stop following him and start following the Lord. And they all refused. And then they suffered for 40 years. So go figure, right? Like, come on. This isn't, this isn't rocket science here. Brain surgery. Okay, so I've got a couple of scriptures I want to share and then a couple of quote, well, a quote uh, by Brigham and then, uh, and then um, something from Joseph and then we'll close this out. Okay, so 2 Nephi 26, 20 through 21. Um, just keep in mind that the church is a Gentile church, um, that it is an Ephraim-based church, and there are lots of, um, lots of examples in Scripture about of those two things that, um, that are going to shift. Um, okay, uh, 2 Nephi 26, 20 through 21. And the Gentiles are lifted up in the pride of their eyes. Elsewhere in Scripture, it talks about when the Gentile, when the day of the Gentile comes in. We're there. Like, unequivocally, we are there. The day of the Gentiles has come in. And the Gentiles are lifted up in the pride of their eyes and have stumbled because of the greatness of their stumbling block, that they have built up many churches. Nevertheless, they put down the power and miracles of God, and they preach unto themselves their own wisdom and their own learning, that they might get gain and grind upon the face of the poor. And there are many churches built up which cause envyings and strifes and malice. Um, we're there. Like as I sit and watch the fighting, the end fighting going on, I'm, I'm part of two previous words Facebook pages. And because I'm saying this, I'll probably get deleted from one of them or more of them if, if I have enemies listening because... They're going to be like, he's spying on us. But I've watched these Facebook pages. I haven't even been on social media for like eight weeks or eight months. And I get back on there and what do I see? Like I see people completely shredding each other over the mask issue. There's not a clear line of, of discussion or, you know, from the, from the church. Probably a good thing. Um, I'll give credit there. Like hopefully they're leaving it up to agency. Well, they're leaving it up to the agency of local leaders. Some local leaders, in my mind, are taking things too far. Um, but that's neither here or there. Um, I'm watching these people shred each other over the mask issue. Like these words literally vehemently fighting against one another. And I'm like, are we not seeing what's actually happening right now? We are primed to watch the parable of the ten virgins be fulfilled the parable of the two brothers, the separation of the wheat and the tares. And honestly, at the end of the day, the advent of the Davidic servant, because somebody's got to come back and, and reestablish order. But at first it has to fall apart. Um, and I'm like, what is happening, right? Like what is literally happening right now that we are seeing these people in the quote-unquote church of God who have more restored truth than any people in the history of mankind are shredding each other and literally inviscerating each other publicly in a forum on Facebook over the mask issue. Really? Like at the end of the day, I get you're a freedom fighter. I promise that if you read scriptures, you can see that the Lord allows people to be pushed around pretty far before he allows them to quote unquote fight back. We're going to get pushed a lot farther than the mask issue. 
right? And right now, I genuinely believe on that, that we are in the render unto Caesars what is Caesars, right? Okay. I think we're a long ways away from, from drawing our weapon and, you know, and, and fighting with people on constitutional rights. Like, of course, we know they're going to be infringed upon, right? But where's the long suffering in fighting over something like a mask? There isn't, right? And if you're into that thing and that's what you feel like you need to do, I'm not going to doubt your revelation. Go for it, right? But if you're causing envying and strife and malice, you're probably not in the, you're not in the Lord's camp. And then the flip side of that is that there are groups of people leveraging shame and guilt, right? They're pummeling people with, if you don't wear a mask, then you're irresponsible and you're threatening people's lives and you may as well just start shooting people. Like I've literally said things, read things like that. And I'm like, whoa, like, where are we, right? Like, where, where have, we, have we gotten here? And the reality is, is that we've gotten there because... Um, because that's what Lucifer wants. This is this is his world. And he is dividing the kingdom of God on the earth. Well, he's dividing the church. Um, and, and he's going to establish out of the rubble of that, the kingdom of God. Okay, another scripture. Uh, this is going to get pretty pointed. And look, I am not here to, again, to fight against, um, you know, against individual leaders. But I will point out some things and then you can go to the Lord and find out what they mean. Again, I challenge the notion and I want people to message me if they can show me in the scriptures where the quote unquote church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints would not fall into apostasy. I mean, it flies in the face of the parable of the 10 virgins. The Lord told us it would fall into apostasy and that it would be torn in two, right? That half of the members eventually would find themselves ascending and half of them would completely perish, right? Because they didn't have oil in their lamps. It doesn't get any more clear than that in my mind. But again, show me. If, if there's somewhere in scripture where you can, and maybe I would entertain um, prophets of our day, um, quote unquote prophets. Um, but if you can show me where it, where it says in scripture that, that the church wouldn't be um, led astray, then perfect, right? Okay, so this scripture is Isaiah 7, uh, verse 2. And I'm just going to lift uh, a portion of it. Um, and it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim. Right, so, so Ephraim is being confederate with Babylon, the world, right? Syria, in this case. And we're there. We're absolutely there. This is the church, again, a Gentile church. Predominantly, uh, Ephraim is the main tribe. That, that is that has led the church so far and now the church as a body as well as administratively and actions being taken by the church is confederate with the world and there you can go research money matching that's happened with the bill and melinda gates foundation um, and um, you can go and look at other decisions that are being made including pushing um the narrative of, you know, of only focusing on healing that comes from the outside world while recent policy then negates people's spiritual gifts of energy healing, quote unquote, which is 
I mean, the currency of the universe is energy, right? And if someone lays on their hands on someone's head, right, as a duly ordained elder of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they lay their hands on somebody's head and they, and they heal them, they are using, they are leveraging with faith, you know, energy from the universe, from Heavenly Father, from the source, from Heavenly Mother, from the source of healing, Heavenly Mother is the source of healing. Um, they're leveraging, you know, the God family's power, the power of the universe, the energy of the universe to heal somebody. So, and I've shared in other podcasts that I've been healed. Um, it's out there publicly um, that my wife has healed me um, through the power of her priesthood. Um, and yet we have a specific group of people who are being targeted. And this group of people has been targeted. I know of some quote unquote energy healers um, who have been targeted by leaders at the very top. And this is nothing short in my mind of controlling the narrative, um, of seeking to, you know, to keep and maintain control of the flock, right? And it's like, okay, like that's, that's fine. But in my mind, that is the worst type of hypocrisy and apostasy is when you seek to control the narrative of other people, especially when it comes to squashing spiritual gifts. But that's okay, because these people that I know that have been wrongfully excommunicated over what they do uh, with their gifts are still operating, and they understand with perfect charity why this has happened to them, and it's been a trial for them, and a blessing in their lives, and it's been a trial and a blessing for the people that are around them, and it's okay. Okay, so really quickly, if you don't think that the, the, the church is going to follow into apostasy, let's see what early brethren had to say. So are you kidding me? Amidst Joseph and Brigham and the others trying to stand up the kingdom of God on the earth, you literally have them receiving revelation at the time that the church was going to follow into apostasy. And somehow... The all is well in Zion narrative has been perpetuated in the church and people have equivocated the Lord saying he would never again take his authority and power from the earth as meaning the same thing as the church would not fall into apostasy. And that is how I believe people have made that leap. But that's not the same thing. The Lord's not going to take his power and authority from the earth again is not the same thing as the church won't fall into apostasy. Um, those are two separate things. Go to the Lord, you know. And, and be taught that. But uh, I'm going to share first a, a vision by Joseph Smith. Um, well, it was the last, they called it one of his last dreams. Um, it says, he dreamt that he, I was back in Kirtland, Ohio. Um, and I thought I would take a walk out by myself and the view and view my old farm, which I found grown up with weeds and brambles and altogether bearing evidence of neglect and want of culture. I went into the barn, which I found the floor and doors, which I found without floor and or doors with weather um, boarding off and was altogether in keeping with the farm. While I viewed the desolation around me, I was contemplating how it could, how it might be recovered um, from the curse upon it. And there came rushing into the barn a company of furious men who commenced picking a quarrel with me. So all of these men are like poking Joseph in the chest, right? The leader of the party ordered me to leave the barn, stating it was none of mine. 
and that I must give up all hope of ever possessing it. I told him that the farm was given me by the church, and although I had not had it, had use of it for some time back, um, still it had not been sold, and according to righteous principles it belonged to me or the church. He then grew furious and began to rail upon me and threaten me, and said it never did belong to me nor the church. I then told him that I did not think it worth contending about, that I had no desire to live upon it um, in its present state, and that if he thought he would, he uh, he had a better right, I would not quarrel with him about it, but leave. But my assurance that I would not trouble him at present um, did not seem to satisfy him, and he seemed determined to quarrel with me, and a threat and threaten me with destruction of my body. While he was thus engaged, pouring out bitter words upon me, a, a rabble rushed in and nearly filled the barn and drew out their knives and began to quarrel among themselves for the premises and for a moment forgot about me at which time i took the opportunity to walk out of the barn about my way about my ankles deep in mud when i was a little distance from the farm i sur i heard the screeching and screaming of a very of a very distressed manner and it appears that they had engaged in the general fight with their knives while they were thus engaged the dream or vision ended um and that's joseph's vision of the dilapidated barn you can take from that what you wish joseph to my knowledge never gave commentary on what he felt the meaning was so it's almost like a mic drop like here you go here's one of the last things i received from the lord you take it as you want but in my mind it clearly is the church we know joseph's going to come back and the church is is completely in disarray just based on what i'm seeing with the with the end fighting over you know over something as small as a mask right now um and the literal you know people are literally kicking themselves out of zion opportunities because of their their contention over something like a mask it's it's crazy to me um but it's also purposeful informative and part of the process so let me close with this quote from Brigham Young. And this quote is very pointed. And other early apostles and the prophets um, echoed the similar, these similar sentiments. Brethren, I would include sisters. This church will be led on to the very brink of hell by the leaders of this people. Then God will raise up one mighty and strong, spoken of in the 85th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, to save and redeem this church. That is pretty clear language. I believe that is a very good interpretation of Joseph's dream in a very concise statement. The Lord never said, to my knowledge, in scripture or otherwise, that he wouldn't cause the church to go to an apostasy. In fact, when he commanded us to read the words of Isaiah, they are literally a roadmap for the times that we are in. And I would encourage you, if you've never heard of Avraham Gileadi, to go and go through his podcast series and use the Spirit, because he'll tell you the same thing. He's only presenting information. Use the Spirit to understand Isaiah. The Lord commanded us to read the words of Isaiah. And this is another fruit of apostasy in my mind. The Lord commands us to read Isaiah.
the church administratively comes up with a new program called what? Come follow me. And yet in the Book of Mormon, part of the Book of Mormon coverage of, I believe it's 20 chapters of Isaiah are in the Book of Mormon. We had one lesson dedicated to those Isaiah chapters. One. Tell me that's not a sign of apostasy. The Lord commands us to read Isaiah and know the words of Isaiah because there was no greater prophet. Then the Lord gives us the Book of Mormon and strips out 20 of the most important chapters in Isaiah, in my mind, and wants us to read those. And we dedicate one lesson, one lesson to all the chapters of Isaiah in the Book of Mormon for the Come Follow Me administrative process or administrative program, administrative Sunday school program. That is a fallacy. And the Lord is not pleased with that. Brothers and sisters, I testify to you in the name of Jesus Christ that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is an apostasy. And it's okay. It's purposeful. It's formative. From this, from the ashes of disaster, grow the roses of success. From this apostasy, um, we will see the, the outgrowth of the 144,000 stepping into their own, the church of the firstborn, the Davidic servant will return to restore order, and we will see the kingdom of God established on the earth. And we will go from a fallen and celestial church to a people being led by Christ in the church of the firstborn. And I know that that has to be. It's always been this way, right? It's always been a tumultuous process. So there's nothing shameful about honoring where we're at. I had a friend message me this week and goes, well, remember, you know, he was, he was counseling me and he was providing me good counsel, but he's like, remember, you know, that a house divided against itself cannot stand. So be careful with your tone and, you know, how you may or may not be quote unquote attacking the church uh, or the brethren or whatever. And again, I go back to what I, I genuinely believe um, Paul meant, you know, that we're supposed to battle spiritual darkness in high places and there's spiritual darkness in high places all the way to the top of the church. And if you don't think it's there, well, go to the Lord and ask him if it's there and he'll confirm it to you. So here's what I have to say. With regards to a house divided against itself cannot stand, that's absolutely a true principle. But let's understand unequivocally right now, the house is already divided. I'm literally watching in the area where I live, families move here by the hundreds because the Lord's directing them to, and I'm watching the old entrenched blood here go, why are they moving here? Why are they moving here without jobs, right? Why, why are these people doing this, right? And I've heard and witnessed people go because the Lord's bringing them here, right? Like th this is not like these people all got together in a, in a cult on Facebook and said, let's all move to this portion of Northern Idaho. The Lord is literally moving his pieces. He's moving his people. And if you're so entrenched in your, you know, in your all is well in Zion, get prepared, right? For the Lord to reset your synapses, to have some things fire. He's going to do it through subtlety at first, like people moving into your area in hordes who are following the spirit of the Lord. Um, and then he's going to do it way more in, in your face as we come down the stretch with tribulations. And so we get to choose, right? Are we going to act? Or are we going to be acted upon? Uh, and that's really the phase where we're at. And, and I really honestly, 
here's the thing. I'm going to say this out loud. Um, it's, it's probably purposeful that I'm saying this today. And I've said it before, but I will say it again. I'm willing to sit down and reason with anybody over anything that I've discussed, over anything I've received. I'm willing to sit down and reason together with anyone over these things. And that includes Russell M. Nelson, Dallin H. Oaks, Henry B. Eyring, any of the Q12, the Quorum of the 12, 70s, stake presidents. It doesn't matter. I, I would love to sit down and have a conversation about these things. Let's be honest, right? Let's have an honest discussion with, uh, that is bound that is bound and founded in love, and let's and, and then discernment of the truth, right? Let's sit down and reason together. But I am watching people come into my life, not even by means of this podcast, by means outside of this podcast, who are being persecuted by the church, by leaders in the church being excommunicated by stake presidents who've been told by an Area 70, and that Area 70 claims he was told by an apostle to excommunicate them. Can we not see where we are? When you have somebody of high rank in any situation coming down and placing edicts on lower level judges and usurping keys, you've just nullified the reason the Lord set up checks and balances in his quote-unquote church. So again, and I'm okay with this. Like I get that it's purposeful, it's needed. Avraham Gileadi and others were excommunicated and restored. It's good. They understood it was good. But let's be honest about where we are. Let's be honest about the fact that we're seeing fulfillment of the words of Isaiah when he said that in the last time, the watchmen would be lazy. They wouldn't do their job. They would be like dogs, watchdogs who are not barking. Well, again, I said this before, I'm barking and I want to have an honest conversation. This is an invitation, right? To sit down and let's have a conversation about this. Stop blackballing people. Stop marginalizing people. Stop the witch hunts because you're only further condemning yourself and sit down and actually invite some of these people to the table and have a discussion because they are people who are filled with love and passion. Obviously, I'm an impassioned person. Who, are, who want to have a reasonable discussion. They want to reason together. They want to come to an understanding of where we are in the history of time. And they want to come to an understanding uh, and a mutual understanding that, that they've been given gifts by the Lord and they're being told to do things that don't fit the narrative of what has been preached for a long time. And that the Lord's changing the narrative and he's doing his marvelous work and a wonder and his strange work through the people. Right? And if you're not honest enough as a church body and as a church leadership to start having these discussions, maybe in a forum setting, then you're not reasoning like the Lord wanted. And it will be to your condemnation and to the continued condemnation of the church. The Lord made a requirement for us to build Zion and then told us in the Doctrine and Covenants, we are under condemnation for not building Zion. And the reason we haven't built Zion is because slowly over time, because he honors agency, even of the church, and he equated the church to being a woman so that we could personalize the church and give it its own personality and honor the agency, the collective agency of the people in the church, we're literally seeing 
the absolute signs of full-on apostasy and the complete, near-complete rejection of agency and nothing but, you know, but control and, and absolute manipulation and eventually full-on persecution will come from it. And we're nearing that full-on persecution phase right now. Like we are on the brink of it. So let's have a discussion. Make, make the invite. I've invited you to come to me and you're probably sitting there going, we're not, you're not worth our time and that's fine. But I know a lot of people who are genuinely in love, like to sit down and not be violent verbally or otherwise, but to, to just reason together, to read the scriptures and go, okay, what you're saying doesn't fit this scripture or vice versa. And let's, let's reason. Let's have a discussion. That's what Zion was, right? Zion was not a group of people who all thought exactly the same and suddenly appeared in the same place and then ascended. It was 365 years of full-on willing-to-be-vulnerable discussion in order for Enoch to build Zion. That's what has to happen. We don't get to skip the process. So stop being afraid and let's sit down and actually have a discussion. Let's actually talk and reason together. And that invitation stands and it stands in love. And I testify to you as leaders of the church, all the way up to President Nelson and the first presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve, to anybody that I'm willing to reason with you. I want to have this discussion. My soul hungers for this type of vulnerability and intellectual and spiritual honesty. And I testify that that's true. And I testify that I I do all that I do in his name, even if I do it imperfectly. And though I do wrong, I do not the wrong that I'm charged with. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Hurrah for Israel. I thought this would be early. And then I went to an hour and 12 minutes because everyone who knows me knows that I could talk forever, especially when it comes to um, expounding doctrine as I understand it. And I am not infallible. I don't know everything. I want to learn more. And I've been so grateful that some people have reached out in honesty to start to grapple with heavy hitting topics of the restoration. And uh, I really genuinely hope that that, uh, that that sentiment and that desire and that level of intellectual and spiritual um, honesty will, will permeate all the way to the top of the church and that a genuine invitation will be extended um, for a group of people who represent the fringe or those who are um, who have partaken of the bitter cup of being pushed out of the church in one way or another, um, but who are not bitter. Um, am I passionate? Absolutely. But don't confuse my passion with uh, being angry in a celestial sense, because I'm not. Um, I'm discontent divinely, um, but I'm not angry. And uh, all right, I don't know what the next topic is, but... Uh, but hopefully it'll be soon. And uh, I love you all. Hurrah for Israel. And uh, God be with you till we meet again.